When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Everything 80s podcast movie review, and today we're looking at Back to the Future. So what we'll do here is look at the actual movie itself, um, who's behind it, the plot breakdown, some behind-the-scenes things, and then sort of my own review on you know, themes and structures and narratives and a little bit of all that sort of thing. So it'll be a good overlook at the whole movie and and hopefully a bunch of stuff you didn't know about it. So before we start, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. I should be there. So Back to the Future, of course, came out in 1985. It was directed by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale. It stars Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, Leah Thompson, Thomas F. Wilson, Crispin Glover. So the quick rundown, in case you didn't know the plot, we start in 1985 in Hill Valley, California. So young Marty McFly is visiting the home uh, and a lab of his friend who's a disgraced nuclear physicist named Emmett Doc Brown. So Doc Brown's been missing for a few days. Marty can't track him down, but he calls the lab and asks Marty to pick up some specific equipment of his for an experiment later that night. So then we follow Marty to school where we meet his girlfriend, Jennifer, and he's, you know, berated and taken down by the principal. And he's just, you know, not encouraged to pursue the battle of the bands. And he's, there's just not a lot of faith behind Marty McFly. And he expresses that in his fears to Jennifer and that he is afraid he'll become like his parents who have no ambition and no real success and anything like that. So we go home to the McFly household and we see George McFly and his supervisor, Biff Tannen. And Biff is pretty much bullying George after wrecking his car. And we then meet Lorraine, who's, you know, not in really good shape. She's sort of a depressed alcoholic. But we learn the story of how she and George first met when George was hit by her father with his car. And then she nursed him back to health. So we then later meet Marty uh, and Doc at the parking lot by shopping wall. It's 1.16 a.m. It's October 26 at the Twin Pines Mall. And it's important to remember Twin Pines. So we get the unveiling of the incredible time machine built from a modified DeLorean. It's powered by plutonium that Doc Brown stole from some terrorists and with the promise of building them a nuclear bomb. So he shows Marty the controls. He sets the date to November 5th, 1955, just as he's like playing around with them. And that was the day he came up with time travel. So the terrorists arrive out of nowhere. They open fire. Uh, They end up 
killing Doc, and Marty jumps in the DeLorean to get out of there, accidentally activates the time machine in the process. Then he finds himself transported back to November 5th, 1955, and he has no plutonium to return. Over the course of his discovery of the time he's in in Hill Valley, he runs into a teenage George McFly. He also meets a young Biff who they found has been bullying him since high school. So he follows George home where he sees him spying on what will be his mother. George falls out of the tree. Marty pushes him out of the way. He gets hit by the car and he gets taken in where Lorraine, played by Leah Thompson, ends up becoming infatuated with him, basically. So Marty's able able to track down the younger Doc Brown from 1955. Doc's not too impressed with Marty's knowledge of the future, but he believes him when he tells him how um, he came up with time travel. Marty regales the tale that he had been told by Doc about falling off his toilet and coming up with a flux capacitor that makes time travel possible. So... Doc is now believing him and wants to help Marty get back to the future and then finds out that to do it, you need a huge surge of energy, 1.21 gigawatts, which can also actually pronounce gigawatts, but a lot of physicists can go with the G on that one or the soft G. And they find out that the only thing that can do this is a bolt of lightning, but you never know when or where they're going to strike. But Marty's got a flyer that you remember from earlier in the movie about the town courthouse being hit by um, a lightning bolt and it's stopping the clock tower. So it ends up that that's going to be that coming Saturday night, November 12th. So Doc then gets the plan in motion to help get him home, but he has to remind Marty not to interact with anyone as it could inadvertently alter the future. He then realizes he has accidentally bumped into his parents and they, the feelings that Lorraine should have had for George have been transferred onto Marty. So now he's got to do all this to try and get them back together or actually create that first romantic um, involvement or he will be erased from existence. So Marty attempts, you know, to connect them, but it's failing. So they come up with this uh, plan that they're going to confront, George is going to confront Marty, take him out, and then she'll fall for him. But Biff inadvertently comes in and like ruins that whole plan. Um, while that is all going on, Lorraine has asked Marty to the school dance, and that's when the plan is going to take place. It, during this, we get the um, kind of accidental invention of modern rock and roll, where Marty gets to go up on stage. He plays Johnny B. Good. Then, as he gets out of there, the storm arrives. Marty returns to the clock tower to get ready to go to the future, and then there's a mishap with uh, wind and the cables go down and Doc's got a last second effort to get up there to fix the cable, but Marty hits it just in time as the lightning hits and returns to his uh, original departure. So he had set himself back another 10 minutes so he'd have time to um, stop Doc from being killed. Doesn't get there in time, but watches as he runs up to, which is now the Lone Pine Mall, because when Marty first got to 1955, if you notice, he goes to Old Man Peabody's farm. As he's escaping, there's two pine trees in the front. He runs over one of them. So that was the land that used to be Twin Pines, became Lone Pine, and that mall, if you see the sign from the mall at the beginning and the end part of the movie, you'll see it's changed. So he see he comes back and he sees that 
Doc has still been shot, even though uh, before he left in 1955, he wrote him a letter telling him how he would be killed and to do anything he could to prevent it. But Doc said, no, you don't want to screw up future events. He goes down to find him, but realizes Doc is alive. He's worn a bulletproof vest because he kept the letter and decided what the hell he was just going to read it and it ended up saving his life. So Marty then awakes the next morning and everything has changed. His house has changed. Everything's new and modern and expensive looking. His father is now this successful, self-confident author. His mother is fit and happy. And Biff has resorted to this, you know, um, auto mechanic. Marty then reunites with Jennifer. Uh, things are looking good. He's got the truck he always dreamed of. Everything's fallen into place. But then Doc appears out of nowhere and insists they have to return to the future because there's something very wrong with their kids. All three of them get in the DeLorean, which is now able to fly and travels into the future. So let's look at a few things revolving around the making of this movie. So it came out on July 3rd, 1985. It would end up being the highest grossing movie of 1985. It made $389.1 million, which converted for today is around $800 plus million. It was a monster, monster hit. And I think it lasted 12 or 13 weeks at number one, which is pretty incredible. So the one big thing to note with this movie is the movie you're watching is not what was originally intended specifically with the actors. Michael J. Fox was always the first choice of the movie, but they just couldn't get him because of his commitment with Family Ties, the TV show. They went with an actor named Eric Stoltz, and they filmed so much of the movie that the entire thing was practically done. Thomas F. Wilson, in an interview on the Nerdist podcast with Chris Hardwick, tells about the whole experience working with Eric Stoltz. They they were so far done, almost completed this movie, that him and Eric and a few of the others were starting to talk about, oh, what do you have coming up after this movie? Like, what do you do? That's how far along they were. Something just wasn't working with Eric Stoltz, he's a good actor, but he wasn't capturing that comedy style. It was a little too dramatic, a little too serious, where a big part of Back to the Future is the comedy. So they had to make the crazy decision to fire their lead actor and start all over again when they found out Michael J. Fox was available. Like They, they were like two weeks away from finishing filming and they abandoned the whole thing to get over it. The other thing is Doc Brown played by the great Christopher Lloyd, again, wasn't the first choice. They were going to go with John Lithgow, I believe, and then eventually seeing uh, how great Christopher Lloyd was. Also, Thomas F. Wilson wasn't the original Biff Tannen. It was the other guy in the bully, the, his gang of bullies, the skinhead guy who wears the uh, bike gloves or whatever. He was the original Biff. And then they realized he just wasn't physically imposing enough and then recast uh, Thomas F. Wilson as Biff. And... Jennifer, who uh, was originally going to be Melora Hardin, who was Jan Levinson Gould from The Office. So she was ready to go for the movie and filming with Eric Stoltz because they were, you know, a certain height. Michael J. Fox is not a tall person. He's like 5'5 five, five or whatever. When they had to cast him, they realized Melora Hardin was like four or five inches taller than him. So it would just look too awkward. So they had to get rid of her. Some other interesting things. We all know the movie as when they're all flying off in the DeLorean at the end to have that be continued 
scroll across the screen. That was never the intention. There was never really an intention to do a sequel for it. And that to be continued never appeared in the theatrical release. It was only added on home video after. So let's look at a bunch of uh, sort of hidden things and things you might have missed throughout the course of the movie. Like I mentioned, the Twin Pines, Lone Pines uh, sign at the mall. Uh, some other like hidden things there, playing in Hill Valley in the movie theater, you can see a movie called The Atomic Kid. And that was an interesting choice because of its connections to Back to the Future and science fiction movies. Uh, it was a movie that starred Mickey Rooney as a uranium prospector who had accidentally stumbled upon a nuclear test site. This is kind of like a superhero origin story because he's able to survive the blast of an atomic bomb and inherit strange powers after being irradiated. So it's an interesting choice because of its connection between you know uranium and plutonium. And also in the earlier versions of Back to the Future, when they were trying to decide how Marty would get home, before they came up with the lightning idea, they were talking about that it would take a nuclear test site, you know, where they'd let off nuclear bombs and test them, and that he would have to harness the energy from the nuclear bomb site to get back. So a good use there. And then another one, my favorite one is The Hanging Man, which the very opening shot when you see all the clocks in Doc's lab when Marty's walking through it, on one of the clocks, there is a character hanging from one of the arms of the clock. And it's hard to see, like it, it goes by pretty quick, but it's actually seen from another movie, an actor called Harry Lloyd, no relation to Christopher Lloyd, from a movie called Safety Last from 1923. But it's foreshadowing what's going to happen with Doc, who hangs off the Hill Valley clock at the end of the movie too. So the, in the first like 30 seconds, you're getting sort of the synopsis of the movie. Some other ones, uh, when you see Marty in Doc's garage at the start of the movie hooking up to the amp, there's a whole bunch of different dials and gauges. On one of the dials, you see CRM114. This is a nod to Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strange Glove, which was he had a, it was a fictional piece of radio equipment on the B-52 bomber, and it was called the... And Dr. Strange Glove is called the CRM114 Distributor. And so that was just a little call back to that. Another interesting thing, Marty, when the last meal he has in 1985 before he goes into the future, he's eating meatloaf. Then that night in 1955 with um, Lorraine's family, they're also eating meatloaf. So showing that this is sort of some continuity between the Baines women over the uh, the decades. And at that same time, too, he's watching The Honeymooners, an episode called The Man from Space, where Ralph has to dress up as a man from space trying to win a costume contest. So they're watching that, the rerun in 1985. Then at the dinner table in 1955, they watch it. And of course, Marty says, hey, this is, uh, I've seen this one. It's a classic. And they're like, how could you? It's brand new. And he talks about what a rerun, and they have no idea what a rerun is. The problem is that episode, this is set in obviously November 1955, that episode of The Honeymooners didn't come out till New Year's Eve in 1955. So there's no way they could have watched it in November 5th, 1955. Some other things, like a lot of those records you see in the stores in 1955 didn't actually come out until years later. So I don't know if someone missed that. There's also a typo in the phone book when Marty is in Lou's Cafe trying to call Doc we see they've spelt his name wrong. They list him ha as Emmett Brown, E-M-M-E-T Brown, and not the proper E-M-M-E-T-T -T Brown. So someone missed that one. 
Let's go through a few more. There is the clock tower ledge, which hopefully you've noticed this one in 19, in the first time we see 1985 and Marty and Jennifer sitting in front of the clock tower, it's the clock is stopped stop it, it's completely normal. After Doc breaks it and Marty returns to the new 1985, we can see that that ledge that where he broke is still broken off and carried over through the decades. There's an interesting thing, like if you're wondering why at the dinner in 1985 before Marty leaves, George is eating peanut brittle, it's because it was from a deleted scene where uh, a neighbor is basically forcing George into buying peanut brittle that his neighbor's daughter is selling for school or this uh, bake sale thing or whatever like that. So because he has no willpower, he has bought like tons of this peanut brittle and has to eat it for dinner. Here's one last interesting thing. And this is like a little bit of a deep sort of meta dive and back to the future. So when Marty wakes up after coming back to the future into the new and improved 1985, he wakes up to his radio playing a song called Back in Time by Huey Lewis in the news. And Huey Lewis obviously plays a prominent role in Back to the Future because of you know the power of love. And he's also the teacher who tells Marty that his band is too darn loud. But the inclusion of Back in Time is kind of weird because if you've ever listened to that song, it has a lot of specific lyrics in it. And the song is actually described because it was released, you know, in conjunction with the movie and it was a good sort of tie-in and promotional thing for Huey Lewis and the movie. But the song is describing the events that have just taken place over the course of the movie. So the opening lyrics uh, some of them are ones, tell me, doctor, where are we going to go this time? Is it the 50s or 1999? Obviously referencing Doc himself and about going back to the 50s. The next line mentions that all I wanted to do is play my guitar and sing just like Marty does. The song continues to make references to the events of the movie. Like, don't bet your future on one roll of the dice. Better remember lightning never strikes twice. Please don't drive at 88. Don't want to be late again. But then the song actually mentions Marty by, it's like rehashing the movie and then it mentions Marty by name. The last part of the chorus as the song goes, it goes, got to get back in time, got to get back in time, get back, get back, get back Marty. So if Marty is listening to the lyrics of the song, what would he be thinking? Like the song clearly exists in their universe. And I'm not sure if we're to understand it as being Huey Lewis. Huey Lewis exists in our world, but either way, is the writer of the song familiar with the events that just happened? And it's happening in the fictional Hill Valley. But that would be impossible as Marty just got back to the future. So the song makes sense in our world as we've seen the movie and its connected tie-in. But it exists in their fictional 1985. So what would be going on within that song? I, I understand that's a bit of a deep cut and a, a little too self-referential. So let's look at some more of like the review aspect of this and some more of the themes that are explored through the movie. So... And reasons that make this movie great. So what's interesting is that we get a bunch of different character journeys throughout the movie that all intersect with each other. They, I'd say like the overall theme are, are these people finding their specific purposes in life. So instead of just, you know, following Marty, we're getting all these other stories, like the story of George, the story of Doc, the story of Lorraine. And they all exist separately. It's interesting, like depending on what viewpoint or what character you maybe identify with, like Crispin Glover has always been on record saying he thought the purpose of the movie was the story of George. Whereas 
I'd say for a lot of other people, but not everyone, but you know, also myself, it's the journey of Marty. But you can see how this movie could be considered the story of George McFly. But either way, we're we're seeing all these people without purpose finding purpose by the end of the mo- the movie. Like say with Doc, in the original 1985, he's a rundown scientist. He's had no luck in his life over the decades. And he's finally like, it's finally happening. And then everything goes to hell and he ends up getting shot. But when, you know, the movie comes back around, he has become an actual successful scientist and has contributed to the world. And it's taken his whole life to see that even with, you know, basically due to his invention, that wouldn't have happened. We're seeing the progression, obviously with George starting out as this loser and easily pushed over and his whole journey through the movie and then coming out on the other end with now this newfound sense of achievement and hope and self-confidence. And obviously with Marty, where he's all, he was feeling, you know, uh, like having too many shortcomings and he's feeling looked over and passed by. And now he's waking up in this new future where he has this new possibility and this new purpose. He's got this better life and his better family. And, you know, just even if it's material possessions, he's got this new truck and now this more sense of of peace and something like that. So we were seeing all these different journeys unfold. And that's what makes an amazing movie is, as opposed to just the story of one character. We're seeing the evolution and development of a bunch of them that are all intertwined together. And I think that goes into the one of the other themes of the movie is that idea of not letting your past dictate and determining your future, that it's you're not, you know, sort of punished or, or condoned into having to follow these events and, and let that dictate the course of your life. There is the ability to change. There is the ability for growth, progression, evolution and everything like that. And I think that's something the rest of the trilogy explores a lot deeper, you know, especially going to the third one with the idea of the future can be anything you want. So make it a good one. I think another interesting thing that makes this movie great is that it's it's constantly moving. There's just this real sense of energy to it from the minute the movie starts. It's always in motion because it really only takes course over the period of a few days, you know, so everything is, there's really like no time to breathe. It's just this sort of frenetic energy. And I think you really pick up on that. And, you know, a lot of that will be due to not, not just the essence of the story, the energy of the actors, the action itself, but, you know, in the editing of the movie, it, like I said, it doesn't, it doesn't really stop to catch its breath. And I think that's what sort of draws you in that sort of exhilaration. I think ultimately what, makes this so good back to the future is that it really is the one of the quintessential 80s movies and what i think 80s movies did that really stood out and which has made a lot of them absolutely beloved is that they combine multiple genres into one movie so back to the future is a science fiction movie but it's also a romance um film it's a comedy it's also an action movie. And so instead of just being like one of those things, which is awesome, it's all of those things put together. And I think that's what's made it so successful and what's made it hold up over time and be enjoyed more and more as the years go by. And again, I think that's why a lot of classic 80s movies are considered classics because, you know, say like it's Indiana Jones or, or, or 
The Empire Strikes Back or whatever, because they combine all these things into one, science fiction, comedy, romance, action, and it makes it one of the best movies of all time.